welcome to the ESVS Vascular Forum interviews. This is Susanna Stokmans and Vaiva de Bravaskaite. And today we are sending our regards from the European Vascular Course in Maastricht. Today we are going to talk about vascular medicine with two well-known vascular surgeons, Professor Schmidtli and Professor Jacobs. Even though both of our speakers are very well known in vascular community, we would like to introduce them with a short recap of their background information. I will start with giving a brief introduction to Professor Jörg Schmidtli. He is a board-certified surgeon in general, cardiothoracic and vascular surgery. During his career, Professor Schmidtli had strengthened his knowledge in different hospitals in Europe and in the US. He gained his professorship in 2015. His main clinical interests have always been pathology and treatment of aortic diseases. Up until his retirement last year, he has been a chief of vascular surgery in the University Hospital of Bern, Switzerland. On the top of that, during his career, he has been secretary general and president of Swiss National Society and chairman of education and training committee and president of the ESVS. Moreover, Professor Schmidli has been actively involved in educating younger colleagues, not only in the daily work, but also by actively participating and organizing various hands-on training courses. Welcome, Professor Schmidli. Nice to meet you, and uh, I'm very proud that I can be part of this. Uh, let me introduce you, Dr. Jacobs, Professor Michael Jacobs. <coughs> he is Chief of Vascular Surgery in Maastricht, Universitair Medisch Centrum in the Netherlands, and University Clinic of Aachen in Germany. He is the co-director of multiple aortic centers throughout Europe. Just like Professor Schmidli, he has also strengthened his skills in different centers around Europe and in the United States. Besides his significant input in the EVC development, Professor Jacobs has been a mentor and tutor for many young, younger colleagues in both clinical and academic work. Welcome, Professor Jacobs. Thank you. Hi. As briefly mentioned before, the practice of Professor Schmidli and Professor Jacobs focuses on the treatment of complex disease of the aorta. And in today's podcast episode, we will speak with them about their careers, open aortic surgery, and the future of vascular surgery training. Dr. Jacobs, thank you so much for making the time for us today. We are now in Maastricht, where the 26th edition of the European Vascular Course is being held right at this moment. Initially, this course was held in France, and you were a person who brought this con conference to Maastricht. What inspired you to become a part of it? And moreover, how did you continue and make it this large over all these years? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, <coughs> I had a good friend who was professor of vascular surgery at the university clinic in Marseille, in the south of France. We were good friends in two different countries. I was working in the um, AMC in Amsterdam, and we thought that it would be a good idea to raise an environment for the new generation vascular surgeons. So we did a market analysis uh, back in 1995, which is seems like a century ago, it almost <laughs> is. And it appeared indeed to be a high demand for training. If you go to a standard congress, you sit in a chair and you listen to a presentation. And after three days, you go home and you have not done anything with your brain or your fingers or whatever. So that's where we started. And the first um, EVC was in 1997 in Marseille, in the south of France. And then we, we alternated between Marseille, Amsterdam, Marseille, Amsterdam. And, and we started with only 250 participants, and then it grew to 300 and slowly a little bit bigger until I moved from Amsterdam to Maastricht 
um, Professor Brancherot, he retired in 2009. And we have this beautiful um, large training event building offering 48 rooms where we can have the workshops. So this was for me a perfect combination. And I said, okay, I work and live in, in Maastricht now and I take EVC to Maastricht. And then year by year, uh, step by step, it grew towards a number of, let's say, almost 2,000 participants. I must say that after COVID, the number has decreased significantly. But like today, we had all workshops fully booked again. So this is, in short, the history of the EVC. This is the second day that I've been here, and I'm really happy with, with how it is because it's so practical and it's really something that every for every trainee it's really recommended to go here i think because it's really you can learn so much and thank you for organizing it uh, on behalf of all trainees i think who are listening to this podcast yep, and I hopefully agree. they can, can be able to come next year again uh, and and how are you how do you see it for the future because are you still planning on uh, continuing this in the future or is someone maybe taking over from you yeah <coughs> So you have been carefully watching me that I'm uh, just in front of my uh, pension. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no I'm, I'm just kidding. But like uh, Jurek uh, Schmidtli, um, I will um, officially start working um, in one and a half year. Um, but I will definitely not continue um, as the, let's say, director of VVC until I'm uh, 85 or so. Mm -hmm. So um, I will support... Um, for a sort of a transition phase of two, three years, but then a new crew has to pick it up. The interesting thing uh, also for the listeners uh, in the podcast here is that the workshops we organize, they are open for registration like six weeks before EVC starts. And the workshops which are filled up the, the earliest in the whole uh, six weeks are the open surgical repair workshops. So obviously there is a, a huge demand for the new generation because in their training curriculum, it's it's almost all about endovascular, 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 and there's not much left for open. So yeah, we have all the endovascular workshops, indeed, but we see that the open workshops have a really important function. Well, I, I saw you yeah. in, in the uh, AAA uh, workshop. Yeah. I mean, how important can it be, right? So we will continue with this uh, and expand because we have more demand than capacity. So that's a luxury problem, but we will solve it. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to, to see the future of the EVC then. Is there a name of a future successor already? Oops. that's. Uh, that's <laughs> 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 we can try. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I will tell you next year. Okay. To Schmidtli. You are on the board of directors of the Vascular International School of Vascular Surgery. The goal of this organization is to improve vascular surgery training with lifelike models to support safe and efficient open vascular and endovascular patient care. This is one of the must courses during the residency of both vascular and cardiothoracic surgery, as well as for the colleagues who are preparing for the PEBVS exam. Models used in the course were traveling around Europe for many years together with the exam itself as well as some congresses. Uh, may you give us some details behind the development and initial idea of the course? I have to go back to the 80s. During the 80s, general surgeons uh, from Europe, European countries, and at that time, uh, vascular surgery was not a monospecialty. 
for general surgery uh, surgeons, they pilgrimed to Amsterdam to watch the famous surgeon, Professor René van Dongen, performing vascular procedures, which were known as the Van Dongen School of Vascular Surgery. And as a consequence, the three German-speaking professors, um, uh, Jens Allenberg from Heidelberg, Georg Hackmüller from Vienna, and Jan Latschere from Zurich, they decided to establish a, a hands-on workshop on fundamental vascular techniques and vascular diagnostics in Zermatt, in Switzerland. And the first course with uh, 37 participants took place in 1991. And the course was very popular and well attended and was repeated annually. And in 1996, the Vascular International Foundation was established. And later in, in 2010, the Vascular International School was established. And over the years, uh, carotid and leg and abdominal simulators were developed. And uh, the courses were extended to other countries. And also endovascular simulators were introduced in 1997 to train EVAR procedures. And, and then in 1998, the first cadaver workshop was initiated. Uh, and were all an uh, anatomical incision and, and accesses to the leg arteries could be trained. And many VI courses were uh, conducted during EVC, during ESVS annual meetings and, and other congresses. And when uh, we then provided our simulators for the European exam executed by the UEMS, and it was only possible with the support from industry who used some of the models for their own courses. And over 30 years, uh, Vasco International Foundation and School trained more than 6,000 participants in around 250 workshops or courses in 15 countries. Impressive numbers. Would you agree, uh, just like Professor Jacobs told, that the open, open skills are still on the highest demand? Is it the same? Yes. Yeah. It's the, the most in interest is to gain open skills. Mm -hmm. Why is it uh, important to va for vascular surgical trainees to practice their skills on the models? Well, in the past, for many years, the junior surgeons were trained on the patient. And in the first months, uh, for years, they were watching and assisting procedures, and with time, uh, the trainees were allowed to do the procedures themselves with uh, assistance from uh, of senior surgeons or of consultants. And the advantage to train and practice on simulate is that the technique can be learned from the very beginning to the end, and can be trained before the trainee goes to the patient. The trainee can commit errors and learns uh, how to improve his technique and he can do uh, errors and uh, learn to do extra stitches, for instance. And the trainee spends time to improve the learning curve on the simulator and not on the patient. So the learning curve is shifted from the patient to the simulator. Well, I fully agree with um, Professor Schmidtli. The problem with the models, of course, is that the most difficult and the most important part of an operation cannot be simulated. 
which is opening up the abdomen, for example, yeah. or the chest, uh, dissect three all the way down to the aorta or the renal artery or wherever you have to be. Um, because in my experience, doing the anastomosis is the easiest part of the procedure. It's getting there, especially in, in difficult Just environments, mm-hmm. um, in uh, abdomens where operations were, before, uh, were performed before, um, infection areas, etc. So, yes, models are important. Uh, no, they are not ideal. Um, so we have, to, but we have to cope with it. There is a, an, another solution which is very expensive, um, but maybe it will be cheaper. Um, Jörg already addressed cadavers, but nowadays there are perfused cadaver models. So, and that makes it so expensive. So the cadaver, the human cadaver, is put on a fem-fem cannulation and then perfused, the whole body is perfused. Of course, the patient uh, or the the model is not alive, but at least the surgical axis to get to the point where you have to operate is more realistic. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So um, uh, that's also my um, credo. We have to invest in the most optimal models for our new generation because on the patients it will not it will not happen and are these models already used for vascular training yes they are but they are i think it's like three four thousand euros per model yeah and you can use it once and then yeah yeah. Yeah. very expensive yeah Mm -hmm. uh both of you are very keen in training the future generation of surgeons through the evc and vascular models in the era that you followed your education, vascular surgery looked a lot different from now. How do you think young vascular surgeons should be trained to master vascular, uh, vascular surgery in the whole spectrum? Yes, uh, I'm convinced that the, the techniques being uh, open uh, vascular techniques or endovascular techniques should be trained on the simulator. And once a trainee operates on the patient, he already knows the technique. Would you set up a number of procedures per area where you would, for example, let your trainee start uh, practicing on people? A, a good number, for instance, to, to do carotid endarterectomy is to do 10 procedures on a, on a simulator with a feedback, with a close feedback of a, of a tutor to, in order to improve the technique during the procedure. Mm-hmm. So... I think after 10 procedures on a model, the, the trainee should completely have the skills of the procedure, which is not soft tissue management. As uh, Michael Jacob said, the soft tissue management and the vascular surgeon is a soft tissue surgeon that cannot be learned on the model. You know, it's such a difficult subject because what we have been doing all day here at EVC is operating in the open workshops on plastic models and there is no testing whatsoever how residents are handling the tissues and like you says it's it's all about tissue handling you have to have respect for the tissue and it starts with putting the knife on the skin and make the skin incision and it sounds a little bit absurd but i've seen so many putting the knife on and then have it let's say 90 degrees on the skin, uh, as if you are slicing uh, a steak, uh, yeah. etc. So very simple. Well, clearly uh, they slice more than 10 steaks. 
But but the more complex the operation is, the more uh, training you need. Um, if I just look at thoracic abdominal aortic aneurysms, and I did thousands of them, still every time I do a thoracic abdominal aortic repair, it's different. It's different. Other surprises, other unexpected uh, uh, problems. So the learning curve is forever, which makes it a beautiful profession. Definitely. Uh, nowadays, one of the biggest struggles is combining academic and clinical work, especially with certain quality. Both of you have been actively involved in academic work during your careers and still are. Do you have any advice for future vascular surgeons on how to successfully master those two fields? That's a very difficult question. I, I like the Scandinavian model where academic and clinical leadership is separated. I think uh, a complete uh, chief of vascular surgery and professor of vascular surgery has too many tasks to, to deal with and he needs uh, a good team to delegate some of, of, the, of, of the tasks he has. But uh, I think a good model is to have uh, a separated uh, uh, clinical leadership and, and uh, academic leadership. I would agree. However, those few who can combine it should have the chance to do it. Because I have always loved the um, research, whether it's basic or clinical research, and combine that with, with practice. But <clears throat> more and more, uh, especially in countries of Western Europe, we as surgeons, um, and you, you notice that every day, are becoming managers, um, we become coaches, we are, uh, we are supposed to be leaders, and then in addition you have to be an academic person with, uh, with grants and research, etc. It might be too complex for one single person. A little bit overwhelming, probably. Yeah, I guess so. So the future, indeed, even in my hospital now, uh, many departments have a clinical lead professor, and, well, not, not even necessarily a professor, a clinical lead and an academic lead who is, by definition, a, a professor in the university. We are also curious uh, about your opinions about mentorship. Um, maybe we are curious who your mentors were when you were juniors and, and that you are now probably a mentor for a lot of vascular surgeons in training or other younger vascular surgeons. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? For me, mentoring was uh, extremely important. I was trained in general and in vascular and cardiothoracic surgery. And in every specialty, I had an excellent mentor. I was Leon Lachader for vascular and Marco Turina for cardiac surgery. And I, I would not miss it. From what I have seen, uh, you also have been a mentor for uh, a lot of people as well. Yeah, I had uh, also um, iconic mentors like Dr. Cooley in Houston, Texas, who, who was one of the most famous cardiovascular surgeons in the world. But his mentorship was more an example of a god in an operating room uh, rather than being a mentor, uh, um, let's say, um, in, in 2023. So mm -hmm. mentorship and leadership has changed dramatically. And in opposite to the mentorship uh, 25 years ago, where the chief was the chief and you had to follow the orders of the chief, mentorship now, leadership um, is, is completely different. It's, it's all about listening, 
having a, an open door, uh, giving residents the chance to to shine, to become the best, and and set yourself as a leader step backwards, but let the others rise. Basically, mentee-centered. Absolutely. Yeah, and and to create an environment where where all of the residents or the younger surgeons can really bring out their best. Exactly. Yeah, that's that, and that's it's also a skill that you need to train to to get the best out of people. It's I don't think you're born with it. It's I, it's also something that you probably acquire during your career. Those kinds of skills. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. And and we already you already mentioned a little bit, but what do you think are important soft skills for vascular surgeons to have? Well, I think vascular surgery relies on the teamwork and a multidisciplinary team approach for decision making is an ideal platform to learn soft skills like leadership, like communication, awareness, strategic planning. Um, respectable knowledge exchange is, is extremely important. Extremely important is communication and networking with peers, also during uh, congresses and, and workshops. Yeah, I fully agree. Uh, it, it's uh, Modern leadership is leading by example. And, and if you, as the, the leader, are giving the bad example, it's not strange that your followers are, are taking that over. What I tell my nurses, but also the youngest resident, um, the older resident, is that they all underestimate their role as a leader too. You can be an example if you are a second-year resident in vascular surgery because you, you make the rounds, you are walking with the nurses, patients are in the bed looking at the second year. And that behavior and leadership starts very early. But you need an example. So that, that to me, is the most important part of the, of the soft part. And be an example. Um, be open for, for criticism. Um, and, and especially uh, be transparent, fair, and, um, and open to, to your team. Yeah, that's a good tip, I think, to to make sure even young in your career that you realize that you are an example for many people, even as a junior in your training. Yeah, we were also curious about, you know, in this endovascular area and, and open surgery uh, is, is still a very important skill to have, but it's, it's more, more difficult to train these days. And uh, what do you feel about centralization and subspecialty within the vascular surgery? Do you think this is a solution to train skilled surgeons within all aspects of vascular surgery? I'm afraid it is. It's my conviction. The driver in subspecialization within vascular surgery is optimizing of, of treatment and treatment quality in patient care and also technical development. And, uh, I mean, very, very few musicians play a, a second instrument on the same level. Uh, yesterday I presented um, some um, studies on the American program of vascular surgical residents and now it appears that uh, a resident in five years time does one maximal two open AAA operations in the in the entire training. You cannot allow such a person to operate on patients, no. right? But, but they get their license and then um, well, the first 10 patients are there for tryout and see what, what comes out of it. That should stop. 
<coughs> now, we also know there is a, a very direct relation between high-volume surgeons, high-volume centers, and clinical outcome. So the cry and, 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 and the, the need for centralization is obvious, but I would like to go one step further. For these specific procedures, you also need to centralize the training for vascular surgeons. So if you are in a hospital where they only do five open AAAs per year and you are with five residents, well, it's very logical that you will never or maybe maximum do one. So you should go to a center for six months or a year and, and come out with at least 10 open cases done by yourself. So it's not only centralization uh, of procedures, but also of training, I would say. Mm, let's move on to open aortic surgery. Uh, we, all, uh, we all know that you are the masters in Europe in the field, and uh, we're a little bit touch up on that. But today's generation surgeons, uh, it's very important for them to master open skills. As you both mentioned in the conferences, that's the most wanted courses so far. Uh, so how can we make sure of that? You a little bit explained that actually we actively have to search for better centers to master the skills. Uh, we would go for the technical skill learning to the conference such as EVC or Vasco International. Is there anything else we can do about that? As I said, first they have to know the technique and then uh, they need exposure and that's what I call the mileage. If, if they are not exposed to open surgical procedure in, in their own hospital, they will not success to, to have the skills to do open procedures uh, when they do it on their own. So they need the mileage and the mileage uh, or the, the exposure uh, has to be gr granted by, by the, the service. That, that's my conviction. They need the mileage to feel better and to feel comfortable to do the, the procedure on their own, because doing occasional procedures, as Michael said, should be required. I fully agree, and I think that we all underestimate the problem which is heading, and which is coming to us. I give you another example. I was teaching in China two years ago, and we had a room with at least fifty residents in vascular surgery in China, and I just asked the question: um, Who performed an open AAA in the last five years? and there was not one single hand raising. So obviously in China, they manage to treat the patients without doing open repair. Mm -hmm. But by theory, that is impossible because you need conversions, you need infected grafts to be um, mm -hmm. um, excluded, etc., etc. So it's, it's the, the black monster which is coming towards us, having too many unexperienced open surgeons yeah. For me, is a big worry. Although I am a dinosaur, but but I see what's happening. I also see what's happening here during the courses. And you ask, uh, what is the um, experience you have? Well, I'm a fourth year's resident. Okay, and then we we observe what's happening in the model. And you close your eyes, look at the sky, and say, Oh my God, how is this gonna end? So we have to find solutions. Yeah. And do you feel comfortable leaving your practice in the hands of the of the surgeons behind you then? at this point? Well, of course we select, uh, we train them ourselves um, and we would never let a resident or a young vascular surgeon touch patients if we don't have the confidence that they can do it. But the world is larger than our own yeah. 
environment. Yeah. We are safe in Maastricht, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think uh, we all agree that patient selection and possible outcome has significant correlation. Can you walk us through your criteria of patient selection for aortic repair? What factors do you consider? I think uh, selection should be performed mainly evidence-based uh, according to current guidelines. Um, parameters influencing decision-making are, are, for me, frailty, mental disorders, and patients' uh, independency, like living in a, in a nursing home. Uh, urgencies and comorbidities influencing life expectancies, aggressive cancer, for instance. Uh, I think in, in some patient, patients, watchful waiting should uh, be the better solution. Yeah, if I can add to this uh, important remark from Jörg, let's take the AAA again, okay? We have a, a patient, 82 years old, aneurysm 5.5 centimeter and the general practitioner refers the patient for endovascular repair fine why patient is very concerned oof rupture very big bomb in my in my belly because of bad inflammation so i have learned over the years and i changed really my my attitude if this lady is sitting in front of me and i ask her what what do you think the risk of rupture will be well, very high, very high risk. Uh, I mean, I'm in danger. I need, I, I need an operation as soon as possible. And if I tell this lady, you have 96% chance that nothing will happen because the rupture rate is 4%. And this indicates that we are over-treating so many patients, totally unnecessary treatments. So it's a challenge for the research in the future to identify, for example, biomarkers which can identify who is going to rupture in this 4% group and who is not. Because operating 100 of them instead of four is a mistake, but we don't have the tools to identify those, etc., etc. So any elderly patient with a 5.8 or six centimeter, I go conservative first unless it grows rapidly or whatever, or fit enough, yeah. et cetera. But, but we should have that in our mindset. Don't take the knife or the endograft as the first thing. And naturally, we move on to the next question of which, pa which patients should get an open repair for their aortic aneurysm still, in your opinion, as a first choice? I think uh, patients with uh, difficult anatomy, and difficult anatomy is a challenge for endotreatment, but not for open repair. That, that is one, one uh, possibility. Uh, EVAR failures and EVAR complications, but sometimes also progression of disease after EVAR or after open infections, uh, non-compliance or follow-up. I, I think we, in Switzerland, we have, for instance, farmers that they don't want to come back to follow-up. They, they want to have a, a one-off procedure and that's it. Then uh, that's a patient's uh, wish we should also respect uh, and maybe also uh, and uh, for uh, for sure a patient with connective tissue disorders and uh, sometimes good risk patients. I fully agree. Problem for the patient is, however, if he comes into a clinic where there's no endovascular uh, experience, by definition, she or he will get an open repair and vice versa. 
that's why it's fair for our patients that you can offer them both options. Um, but there are not many hospitals able to offer both options. And we should. When we talk about open repairs, do you think there's a certain number that that we can say that every surgeon needs to do a couple of, of or this many a year to, to keep the skills, to make sure that you, you, you can continue in the future in a safe way? We are talking about 20 to 30 procedures a year, but in my opinion, it should be 50 or more. Per, per surgeon? No, per, per center. center. Yeah, per okay. Center. Yeah, but, you know, uh, coming back to the most um, simple th example, which is the AAA, if you do 10 open AAAs in a very skinny patient, you can do it with the eyes closed, right? If you have to do that in an obese patient of 120 kilograms, that's a different story. So doing 10 of these, which is unusual, but that learning curve teaches so much more than a patient who is uh, 45 kilograms. I mean, it's it's just an easy uh, clam and go thing. So it's a, it's a much broader spectrum, I must say, than an absolute number. I mean, that doesn't tell me enough. Yeah. Uh, and, and you have residents who are so much faster in learning than those who never learn it, even if they do 200 cases. So... Um, it's it's a broader spectrum. I'm also very curious about the the complex uh, aneurysms, thoracoabdominal um, uh, repairs that you both perform, um, and I'm I've never actually seen one. So I'm just really curious how how does it go? Uh, who is in the OR? How what kind of monitoring monitoring do you use for these procedures? Uh, how do you select your patients? Can you tell maybe a little bit more about this? Well, I think it's probably the same in Maastricht and in Bern. Um, we have about 12 people caring for the patients in the OR during six to nine hours. And uh, our monitoring is uh, EEG and NEARS, then MEPs and cerebral spinal fluid drainage. That's, that's what is known nowadays uh, to monitor uh, to, for neuromonitoring we use uh, telemonitoring that means that the monitoring is done in Maastricht by the team of Werner uh, Mess and uh, that's something that works for 15 years now and uh, we are very pleased to have that well what what you guys probably don't know is that Europe was a couple of months in Maastricht. Only three years ago, Jörg? Yes. Yeah. So we spent six months together, operating together, and we concluded that we have exactly similar protocol. So we all do these cases with extracorporeal circulation, with a heart-lung machine. The neuromonitoring is done centrally in Maastricht, even if the patient is with Jörg in Bern. And <clears throat> that makes the discussion so easy. Because I think we worked 25 years on improving the protocol as good as possible. Um, and we optimized that and we do exactly, exactly the same thing. We even published um, on these common neuromonitoring, um, Maastricht, Aachen, Bern, uh, which is actually the template or the blueprint for, let's say, sharing experience and optimizing protocols. We, ha we have to admit that uh, 
uh, that we actually knew that you go way back, but <laughs> oh, <laughs> that, okay. was, that was the reason we have you both here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, thank you. And and about the te- telemore, uh, the remote neural modeling or tele- yeah. telemonitoring, are more centers able to use that? Yes, but they don't know that it exists. Yeah. Uh, so um, we have an extremely enthusiastic, ambitious neurophysiologist. What you just said, that is Professor Werner Mess. And he is at his best if we do three cases simultaneously. So one wow. in Maastricht, one in Bern, uh, one in Aachen. And he's sitting in Maastricht in his office and having three screens. Uh, and, and, well, just like in Houston control room, uh, <laughs> taking care of this. So that That's is de- amazing. That yeah. is dedication. Yeah. You know? and, but if you don't know about it, you, you, you cannot apply it. Well, hopefully, m- maybe people are listening now and they can, can start, it. they can send you an email. Or yes. uh, yeah, okay, yeah. that's cool. I think Professor Mess has to go hold on now because yeah. the emails are going <laughs> to come. <laughs> hopefully. Uh, would you agree with statement that endovascular and open aortic repair do not conflict, but on the contrary, complement each other? I agree, they should not <laughs> There are lots of debates going on that uh, they... They conflict, but we we shouldn't forget the importance of hybrid approaches, combination of open and endovascular repair. My concern for uh, is uh, somebody that chooses endo only, not, not endo first, but endo only. My serious concern is the, the stiffness of the art, all the developments of the industry to develop new uh, stent grafts is going to being the order stiffer and stiffer. That's probably a challenge for the future because we know that some patients will have heart failure without, without having a structural problem of the heart because they have uh, increased the pulse wave velocities and the thickening of the left ventricle mass and then they go into heart failure. And that, that's probably more often the case than we, we, we can see it right now. On the other hand, the outcomes of endovascular repair of um, thoracic abdominal organism has improved over, over time. If I see now that a patient with a type 2 thoracic abdominal from the distal arch all the way down to the bifurcation goes home in four days, if things work out, that is impressive. I mean, we cannot compete with open surgery. However, um, we still have the, well, the, the, the conviction that we should not do that in young 22-year-old malformed patients. However, I continue with the howevers, if you have um, a malformed patient, for example, with an arch and frozen elephant trunk repair and you have a solid proximal landing zone for an endovascular, you might consider that. So um, the results are improving. And that justifies that you really consider more often to do endo. But again, you need to have the open options in your pocket. So balancing is a key, as, as yes. we already discussed. Yes. Yeah. And a challenge for the future. Can you share with us your recipe of success to all the young surgeons out there? That is a, a very difficult question. Um, I had the opportunity to train in general vascular and cardiac surgery and the broad education and training allowed me to dedicate and subspecialize on aortic medicine. So I'm a high-end, I'm a high-end product. 
um, during training, I did not feel the pressure uh, to finish my training uh, and be both certified in the minimum of time. And today I, I gained the impression from junior surgeons and trainees that they want to finish their training as soon as possible to be board certified. And nobody is an aortic specialist after training. It takes many years and many cases to become a good fellow and we maybe later to become a master and a good mentor and a structured training program helps a lot. Yes, I fully agree. Um, I see too, I, I operate in many countries in Europe and I see too many training programs where a resident can do an anhydrectomy or an anastomosis not even in the first five years. Watching, watching, watching. That That is not the way to train the new generation. So <clears throat> whether it's endo or open, the prerequisite is to master the techniques. You have to know all the details about guide wires, about sheaths, about all the endovascular details, and the same accounts for open repair. So you need to be trained for tissue handling, cross-clamping, anastomosing, etc. That's a prerequisite. But you can start with that at the very first day. But then, as a mentor, as a tutor, as a leader, you need to have the patience to, to do that. Because if you are impatient, then you, you do it yourself. Uh, so you're done in one hour instead of two hours. So that is absolutely a must for uh, a good environment. It should also be a safe environment. I've seen centers where residents are punished if they don't do exactly what, what has been said. Well, that is, that is a knife in the, in the back. That never works. So you, ha you have to master the techniques, both endo and open. You, you need to know your literature. Um, you need to know what's going on. But the most important, you need an environment which is safe, which is built for ambitions, and, and to be trained. Because then, and that's what Jurg is telling, if, if you are focusing on, okay, I got six years for my training, I want to get this done as fast as possible, it's gonna be, it's gonna be a, a crucifix, it's gonna be a, a horrible, terrible journey. Whereas if from the first day you are coached and you see your progression every time and again, before you know it, these six years are over. So, it, sounds a bit theoretical but but in practice i think that's the way to go yeah. definitely yeah our next question was about three tips but i think professor jacobs already provided his three tips and uh, Jurk, would you like to to add up a few more well i think uh yeah perform a, a broad training especially in open search and soft tissue handling is, is one choose a good mentor and a good service and then focus on strategic decisions because you can le learn technical skills easy, but to learn how a strategic decision should be made during an operation is something uh, that takes a lot of time and experience. Well, thank you both so much for sharing your time with us. 
me and Susan have greatly enjoyed it and learned a lot. And I have no doubt that so have our listeners. It has been a great pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Good luck. Thank you very much. And thank you all out there for listening. I would like to remind that you can find all ESVS podcasts, open access on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, the Vascular Forum webpage and the ESVS e-library. We wish you all a great day. Talk to you soon again. Bye. Bye. Bye.